0: Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogola. This week, the fall of
1: Roe. Does
2: a right to the
1: court has done what it has never done before: expressly take away a constitutional right that is so fundamental to so many Americans.
3: They want to save the Constitution? Give me a. Blake, I wasn't even in the Constitution. The court affirmed today that every life is worth living.
0: The justices overturned 50 years of precedent ending a woman's right to choose under federal law. We'll have a reaction from both sides plus a look at what comes next. Also, the conservative justices strike down gun control in a sweeping ruling that has major implications for crime and self-protection. And we'll have the latest on the January 6th hearings, plus how they seem to have swayed public opinion. All of that, plus a look at political fundraising in Washington state, coming up later this hour. But we have to begin with that earth-shattering ruling from the Supreme Court on Friday. Joining me now is Democratic strategist Kathy Allen and Republican strategist Randy Peppel. And, and first, before we get into... What comes next? I wanted to get the initial reaction briefly from the both of you. We'll start with you, Kathy.
3: I expected it. But then, now that it's here, I'm sitting here just like staring out the window and being depressed and counting how many times I was in Washington, D.C., arguing for women's rights, including the ability for a woman to choose her reproductive freedom. But the fact is, I'm depressed as heck right now. It really is one of these things that it's hot and it's miserable. And all you can get is just news about how much more it's going to be worse in the future. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Canada doesn't look so bad anymore. It doesn't look bad at all.
4: Randy, it's a disappointing day. Uh, it's a day of overreach, both legal and political by people who should know better.
0: Although you're a Republican, though, it's the they're the pro-choice party. That seems kind of surprising coming from you.
4: Well, I, I look at the issue as one of personal conscience. And the vast majority of people in the United States really don't like to talk about abortion. It's not their first issue. And it's not something that they are focused on. On the on a legal side, the Supreme Court did not need to overturn Roe versus Wade in this case. As Justice Roberts wrote, they had to answer the case in front of them. That's what I mean by legal overreach. The political overreach is primarily coming from Democrats who are saying this is the end of the world as we know it, when they know that that is not true.
3: No matter what, that which spoke to me loud today was Boy, I knew that the Trump legacy was not going to be something that went away, but what a thing to be remembering it now that which was you know anger and just disrespect for our former president just becomes clear-cut hate in terms of what did this guy ended up doing to america that we will never ever seem to change so i'm feeling very low as you can expect and thinking that you know it just keeps getting worse
0: so next this goes to the congress and to the various states we already have seen a number of states with the so-called trigger laws that automatically outlaw abortion once Roe versus Wade is is struck down but the sense is that th- this is not the end all be all here because you're still going to have activists on the left and the right trying to codify their views on this
4: the reality is that this takes the feds out of the equation this is now a each state and the representatives in that state will decide what will be the abortion laws in that state. And in multiple states, primarily states like Washington, uh, California, New York, lots of large states, um, abortion will remain as legal tomorrow and next year as it is today. In a number of other states, smaller states uh, in the South, in the the Midwest, Mountain West, uh, the abortion laws will change, although abortions have been harder to get in many of those states over the last 20 years as other restrictions have been put in place. So the argument that everything changes around this decision, that is a false argument and a Both sides know it. And that's why I said it's a day of political overreach by those who should know better, because they're attacking the institution of the Supreme Court. And the last thing we need right now is more diminishment of our governing institutions and that's why uh, I'm disappointed today.
0: I want to push back a little bit. You, you said this this puts it back in the states, takes the feds out of it. What's to prevent a Congress controlled by Democrats codifying Roe or controlled by Republicans from outlawing abortions nationwide?
4: Because they would need far more votes than either side is going to get. I mean, you're going to need super majorities in, in the Congress, and the presidency to do anything at the federal level and instead what the supreme court said is this goes back to the states i mean that that is ultimately what was said today
3: still be a political issue and that political issue still has a way of easing itself back into the federal agenda but certainly will will dominate the next presidential race
4: politically every day in 2022 that a republican candidate is talking about Runaway inflation, soaring energy prices, rising crime rates, higher taxes, they're winning. Every day they're talking about abortion, they are not.
0: Do you think this changes the calculus for the midterm? Could this be the great equalizer that makes it a bit more competitive in a year where we're expecting to see Republican takeovers?
3: We have actually in our class at the University of Washington, Randy and I have seen that the kind of energy it does bring to people under 25 to get involved in politics has been uh, substantial for me. I've looked at it and said, yeah, this really is one that's going to keep them, keep them busy, keep them en- engaged.
4: I think that there will be a few individual races that this will uh, decide the race in the favor of a Democratic candidate. I don't necessarily see those races in Washington state, but I, I, I think there are some around the country that this could be a defining race. But I don't think it changes the dynamic, which is people are frustrated with government right now. That means they pu- tend to punish the uh, president's party. And I fully expect that we will see a, a Republican U.S. Senate and a Republican uh, U.S. House of Representatives and Republican majorities in our own state legislature because of the same type of partisan overreach out of our own governor.
0: We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Roe v. Wade wasn't the only controversial decision the justices handed down this week. We'll take a look at what the high court said about gun control when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula, and despite some of the other rulings that the Supreme Court issued this past week, one that somewhat got buried was this case about guns out of New York City. The Supreme Court struck down a New York gun law regulating concealed carry in one of the biggest gun rights cases in over a decade. This is causing swift reactions from gun reform advocates as well as gun rights advocates. Joining me now is Fred Lawrence. He is with the Georgetown University Law Center in Washington. DC and I guess, first off, what was the question that the court was hearing in this case?
1: New York State has a law, has had for about a century, that says that in order to carry a weapon outside the home, one needs a license and to get that license, one needs to show good cause for carrying the weapon outside the home. A generalized sense that you feel more secure or that you need it for your self-defense is not considered to be sufficient. The court said that that was an excessive restriction on gun regulation And therefore struck down a century old law that New York had used to limit guns out in the public streets. How often was this law being enforced? Oh, this law was enforced on a regular basis because in order to uh, carry a gun outside the home, you needed to get a license. People applied for those licenses and they had them. They found them very hard to get because the justification that I need a gun because I feel better with it wasn't going to get you a license. The justification that uh, I am my own first line of defense, so I've got to have a weapon. Wasn't going to get you a license. I'm a security guard uh, at a factory where I'm employed to work that would get you a license. So most of those applications were turned down. And two of the people whose applications were turned down brought this suit.
0: Did this have anything to do with concealed carry? I mean, because there's also laws with regards to that as well.
1: Sure, it's a good question. The, The specific holding of this case does not, the broader implications of this case certainly do. Justice Thomas, who wrote the majority opinion for six justices, takes a very broad view of the Second Amendment and says, the restrictions on gun rights go back to what was intended in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was ratified by the states. And he says there've been changes over time, but our touchstone is what did it mean at the time? So there's a very broad sense that he has in that opinion about what the right to carry a gun is. And that will mean that it will be much harder for states to restrict that. Now, what makes this case interesting, if you read past the majority opinion, there's a separate concurrent opinion by Justices Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, Do a little judicial arithmetic with me here. Uh, That's two votes. If you take those two away from the six, suddenly they're not the majority anymore. So this becomes a very important uh, twosome to look at and see what they're saying. Justice Kavanaugh writing that opinion says, there's nothing in here that says, that you can't have any restrictions on guns. It just says this particular form of a what's known as a may issue, that is to say, if you meet certain requirements, the state may issue a permit. That that's too much discretion, as opposed to what are called shall issue laws. Shall issue says if you've passed the Uh, The permit check, if you've done the waiting period, if you've done the background check, if you're the right age, uh, etc., then the state shall issue it. So my guess is what's going to happen next is that states that are looking to have greater levels of gun control uh, are going to really scrub that Kavanaugh opinion really hard to see what's possible in there.
0: Here in Washington state, we don't have a law that is similar to what was in New York. Nevertheless, we are still a very liberal state when it comes to gun laws and, and really any other laws. It's, it's a very left-leaning state. But you, you mentioned that a lot of states are going to be looking at this concurring opinion. Are, are, is there going to be further litigation citing this this concurring opinion? Because usually the Supreme Court is the end-all, be-all of, of debate on these issues.
1: Jeff, the truth is the Supreme Court is a be-all and end-all only on the specific issue they decide. Ordinarily, what happens is what we refer to as the judicial legislative dialogue. Courts make decisions, legislatures respond to it, either the federal legislature, Congress, or the state legislature, like your state legislature in uh, Washington state. And then those new laws can also be challenged. And when they're challenged, they go up to the courts and then you get further opinions. So we go back and forth and back and forth. This is the end of the line for the specific law that New York had, but it's not the end of the line for gun control. That's gonna continue to go forward and there'll be lots more litigation. The answer to your question, when those cases are brought Will they be citing this concurring opinion? I think absolutely.
0: So looking at a more political question here, we're also seeing a lot of gun control, a lot of gun reform in the wake of the Uvalde mass shooting down in Texas and a number of others. Obviously, Congress is going to be having to take a look at this to see if if any of their gun laws are going to run afoul of Supreme Court precedent.
1: Exactly right. And I think they're doing exactly what I just suggested. They're looking at Justice Kavanaugh's opinion, and Justice Kavanaugh says you can require background checks. You can require waiting periods. All of that is constitutional. So for that, if those get challenged, those we think, at least as of right now, it looks as if there are five justices out of nine who would uphold that. The reason I'm saying five out of nine, Justice Breyer steps down at the end of this week. He'll be replaced by Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson in all likelihood, uh, a Justice Jackson will vote rather similarly to Justice Breyer on these issues.
0: What does this say about the makeup of the court? Obviously, we know it's a a six to three conservative supermajority, but are are we seeing uh, with that concurring opinion in John
1: Roberts and Brett
0: Kavanaugh, any kind of wavering in that conservative block?
1: I don't want to overstate that, but I think we can't just say that all six are the same. I think what we have Uh, are three extreme conservatives, Justices uh, Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch, who are as conservative as any justices who've sat on the court for the last century. That's not an overstatement. Then you have Justice Barrett, where it's a little too early to say exactly where she is going to fit on some of these issues. And the Chief Justice, John Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh are very conservative, but they are less arch-conservative than I would say Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch are. So you do have some shades of gray. Having said that, this is still the most conservative court we've had, not only in my lifetime, this is the most conservative court we've had since Franklin Roosevelt first started putting justices on the court in 1937.
0: So is the court losing legitimacy? Because a lot of these rulings that we're hearing from this conservative court tend to be outside of public opinion.
1: Ordinarily, with time, the court catches up with public opinion or helps to influence public opinion. Great example of that would be school desegregation. Not exactly clear where the public was in 1954 when Brown against Board of Education was decided, but the public largely came along. Roe against Wade, you could argue is similar to that. By the time Roe against Wade became settled law, Most public opinion surveys show that a working majority of people in this country believe in some form or another of a right of a woman to choose a reproductive freedom. So it looks as if the court is prepared to go in the other direction now on both of those issues, both abortion and guns. If the court is out of step with public opinion in any particular moment, that's the nature of the, of the business of adjudication. If it stays out of sync, with the public over a long period of time, then you have a crisis of legitimacy. I don't know that we're there yet, but I think there's every reason to pay close attention to that right now.
0: A crisis of legitimacy, you say. What exactly does that mean? Because the court still ultimately has quite a bit of power, regardless of
1: what the people think of it. Yes, it does. But, you know, there's a famous story goes back to the 19th century when the Supreme Court issued Uh, an order that would have required Andrew Jackson, the president at the time, to do something. And uh, President Jackson said, Chief Justice Marshall has issued his opinion. Let's see him enforce it. That was meant to be pretty provocative language. And I'm not suggesting that that's exactly what's going to happen. But if there is widespread disrespect for the judicial branch, that leads to some real fraying of the threads of how our whole system of government operates. So I don't think anything in the short term happens in terms of massive civil disobedience. But The courts have always been seen, ultimately, as the decider of the law, and that requires the vast majority of the public to say, if I agree with them or disagree with them, I still recognize them as the courts. If that ever gets in jeopardy, we're in a very different place.
0: Are we headed in that direction, do you think, or have we ever been there before?
1: I don't think we have been there before, or the closest to it would be in that same period I alluded to earlier in the early 1930s, when the... the, uh, New Deal Congress and President Roosevelt were passing legislation to try to deal with the crisis of the Great Depression, and the court was striking much of that legislation down, and the public was was ready to uh, reject those those holdings, those rulings. That's when President Roosevelt said he wanted to expand the size of the court. That's the so-called court packing plan. Public didn't want that either, but interestingly enough, uh, what happened is one justice switched sides. That's known as the switch in time that saved nine. Uh, justice Owen Roberts switched his position, but pretty quickly, justices began to step down, uh, and, ju- and President Roosevelt began to appoint them. I think you came very close to a legitimacy crisis of the court at that time because they were terribly out of sync with what the public wanted to deal with a major crisis at the time of the Great Depression. Are we there on this these issues right now? I don't think we're there. I don't want to be uh, alarmist about this, but I do think that in a number of ways, uh, including the leak of the opinion, uh, draft opinion in the abortion case, we're seeing th- things that could really test the bounds of the legitimacy of the court.
0: All right, Fred Lawrence, he is with the Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight.
1: Pleasure, pleasure being with you.
0: We have to take another quick break, but coming up, we'll shift to the campaign trail as millions of dollars in donations already pouring into Washington state races Where the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff and Campaign season is already heating up, and that means fundraising is heating up. Some familiar names already dropping some big bucks in Washington state politics. Most notably is Amazon, $60,000 in the last three weeks, according to the Washington Observer. Paul Query, who joins us now on the Northwest Newsline, and uh, let's start right there. Amazon spending sixty thousand dollars in three weeks—that's not a whole lot. But Amazon got burned a couple of years ago when they tried to get involved in city politics.
5: Yeah, that million-dollar donation that they dropped into the municipal races a few years ago kind of blew up in their face. Some of those candidates that they backed wind up losing, and there was some question as to whether that was th- it was because of the Amazon contribution. These races, they're spending in a kind of more judicious way at the state level. Um, they gave $10,000 to the Harry Truman Fund, which is a pact controlled by the Democratic majority in the state house, and another $15,000 to the Kennedy Fund, which is the same thing on the Senate side. Um, and then they've given $1,000 um. For the primary and in some cases, another thousand dollars for the general to kind of a selected slate of, you know, influential lawmakers. They've spent about one hundred and forty thousand dollars on Washington state politics for the 2022 cycle so far.
0: That's not a whole lot considering how big Amazon is and the fact that they spent a million on city races a couple of years ago. And we're talking about state races this time around.
5: Yeah, no, this is, I mean, it's actually, you know, especially if you compare it to Amazon's revenue, it's a tiny amount of money.
0: We're also looking at some of the other campaigns going on for the state legislature. Senator Simon Sevcic, he's that young 22-year-old that was appointed to replace Doug Erickson up in the 42nd District up in Whatcom County. Uh, He's starting to get some money in as well.
5: Yeah, he's actually doing pretty well on the fundraising side. Um, he's an, an incumbent, even though he's he's very young. Um, for example, he was a recipient of one of those Amazon checks. But the thing that really jumped out at me was that he got $40,000 from the Senate Republican Campaign Committee. Um, and that's the hard money pack for the Senate. Uh, minority, that money can be given directly to candidates in in the amount of $1 per voter eligible to vote in the election, which is about $100,000 in Sefcik's case. And he's one of just a handful of candidates in tight races who are getting that kind of money from that pack.
0: So is Amazon starting to back more conservative candidates? Because Sefsik's a, a Republican who's kind of in the vein of Doug Erickson, who who wants to keep that seat in the Republican column.
5: They're giving money on both sides of the aisle. But I did check and I noticed that uh, Senator Sefsik has a primary opponent. But if he gets through to the general election, he'll be up against Representative Sharon Shoemake, who's one of the more progressive members of the legislature. And I noticed that she's got no money from Amazon. So they're not. not hedging their bets both ways.
0: So what are some of the other tight races that we're seeing the money pour into? Because obviously there's a lot of talk on the national front that this is going to be a bad year for Democrats. Are we expecting the same here in Washington state? And as a result, more money flowing in?
5: I think definitely you've got some real optimism on the part of Republican leaders and and Republican political operatives. And you can follow the money and it shows you where they think the opportunities are. Um, In the 26th district, which stretches from Gig Harbor up the Kitsap Peninsula to Bremerton, you've got Representative Jesse Young taking on Senator Emily Randall, who's in her first term. Young just got $50,000 from the Senate Republican Campaign Committee. So, you know, they're in there. There's an open seat in the 47th in South King County. Uh, where Senator Mona Doss is leaving, and there's a a Kent City Councilman named Bill Boyce who's been on the political scene, the local scene there for a long time. He got forty two thousand dollars from that same pack, so they're definitely you know hopeful in that race. And then they also sent a smaller check to Linda Kochmeyer, who's trying to oust Senator Claire Wilson, who's a Democrat who represents the Federal Way area.
0: So are we seeing Democratic donors play defense here this cycle?
5: Yes, definitely. Uh, One of the names that jumped out at me was Chris and Heidi Stolte. They're big donors to the Democratic Party. Um, Chris Stolte was one of the founders of Tableau Software. Um, So he's got a lot of money to work with. He's written a bunch of checks so far. They've spent $127,000 on Washington State politics this year between the two of them. Um, And they sent some money to Boyce's opponent, whose name is Satwinder Carr, who's also a Kent City Councilwoman. I'm probably brutally mispronouncing her name. (laughs) Um, They also sent money to defend Senator John Levick up in the 44th District and Senator June Robinson in the 38th District. Those are both in Snohomish County. The 44th is traditionally considered a swing district. The 38th would take a really big Republican wave year for Republicans to win it. But, you know, this shows that they've got some optimism there.
0: How on the heels are Democratic candidates and Democratic donors this time around here in Washington state?
5: You know, there seems to be plenty of money flowing around um, from the, the, you know, in addition to the the wealthy folks who contribute to the Democratic Party. um, You're also seeing big spending by Democratic interest groups or Democratic leaning interest groups like the Trial Lawyers Association and the Washington Education Association, which is the Teachers Union. They've sent about $30,000 checks since June 1st to, to uh, candidates for the legislature. Um, the WA is traditionally the single biggest player in Washington politics. So
0: what else are we seeing as far as people getting into the the money race, as it were? Obviously, you mentioned the WEA, a number of unions. Are we seeing some newcomers this time around?
5: I haven't seen a lot of newcomers. One interesting um wrinkle that I've seen that I wrote about in The Observer on Sunday is that there's a new campaign to put some initiatives before the legislature next year and these these would be collecting signatures through the rest of the year with the idea that if the Republicans took a narrow majority that they could pass these initiatives without the gov- and the governor couldn't veto them. So that's you know that's kind of an interesting wrinkle. I'm not seeing a lot of new money. Although one thing I did notice is that two of the major um, Seattle area property developers, John Goodman and George Petrie, who played really heavily in the municipal races last year, are also in fairly deep for Republican candidates for the legislature this year and i think that that's their, um, the property development community have been has been kind of alarmed by the sort of progressive bent of the legislature in recent years they've sort of flirted with things like rent control and changes to land use policy and so on and so forth
0: we're talking with paul query of the washington observer and the other thing that you write about is that this kind of little-known loophole in finance politics. What's going on here? Because it looks like money that's been donated to one candidate can then be shifted around to another candidate.
5: Right. I I call this the surplus shuffle, and it works like this. So Someone like, for example, the Speaker of the House, Lori Jenkins, can raise really significant amount of money, even at $1,000 per contribution, for her re-election campaign. Now, the Speaker has no re-election campaign to think of. She's going to win by an enormous margin. So what she can do under the law is turn that money around and put it into the caucus's political action committee. And then the money can be given to candidates in close races at about $100,000 per seat. And so that does a pretty, pretty good job of sort of washing out the campaign finance limit in those tight races.
0: That can't necessarily be legal, at least through the intent of the law, because I would imagine that donors who are donating to one candidate wouldn't want their money going to another.
5: This was an initiative that was passed decades ago. And it's pretty clear that the folks who wrote that initiative had this loophole in mind. So it's not something, it's, you know, they're not really stretching the law so much as <laughs> using it in the way that it was intended. And I think one of the ways it was intended was to give the leaders in the legislature some ability to control who the candidates were and how much money they got. So
0: what is surprising you the most as we head into the third quarter of fundraising for the 2022 cycle?
5: I'm not finding it tremendously surprising. I think I'm seeing a lot of money flowing in Republican circles in recent weeks. last couple of cycles have been very bad for Republicans in Washington, largely because Donald Trump was sort of dragging down the party's performance that caused a lot of big Republican donors to kind of sit on their wallets in many, in many cases. And I think what will be interesting to see is, you, is if you see those folks come off the sidelines for this race. And we're seeing that in to some extent, but we haven't seen. A ton of it, yet.
0: Finally, look into your crystal ball. Do you think the Republicans take one or both houses of the legislature?
5: Yeah, I try not to be in the prediction business, <laughs> but the people I talk to about this see a path. It's kind of steep and narrow and rocky um, for the Republicans to take the House. Um, the Senate it seems like a tougher road for them. You know, you can count to twenty-four, but. The 25th seat will be a heavy lift for them.
0: All right, Paul query with the Washington Observer. You can read more at washingtonobserver.substack.com. Thank you so much for your time and insight.
5: Thank you so much, Jeff. It's good to be with you.
0: Still to come, Americans have taken a dim view of former President Donald Trump and his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We'll look at some just released polling data when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojla. Some big news on the polling front out this week as it now appears that a majority of Americans believe former President Trump should be charged with a crime Further, a majority of Americans also believe the January 6th committee is conducting a fair and impartial investigation. Joining us now to break down some of these rather surprising numbers is Ike Jochi, ABC News correspondent from Washington, D.C. And with as partisan as things have become in this country over the last decade or so, it's surprising to see that a majority of Americans both want to see President Trump charged with a crime and are trusting this committee.
6: That right it is, you know, we've just been seeing the bifurcated nature of our political discourse and to think that a majority would do something this drastic. It really is something that we haven't seen, given the recent political history of what this country has been going through. And this poll is just an indication about how profound these hearings have been on the American people. So the poll was taken after the third public hearing from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And just as you said, the poll found that six in 10 Americans now believe former President Donald Trump should be charged for a crime for his role in this incident. Six in 10 Americans also believe the committee is conducting a fair an impartial investigation. So these poll numbers, it really indicates that the hearings are a little more convincing than initially thought. 58% of Americans think that he should be charged for a crime, and that's slightly up from the numbers in late April, which were at about 52%. Now, the poll does divide among party lines. 91% of Democrats think Trump should be charged compared to about 19% of Republicans. Nevertheless, that's still one in five Republicans who think Donald Trump has some or a good deal amount of culpability in these attacks. Now, former President Trump, he attacked the hearings. He called them uh, the panel con artists. Then he continued to repeat his usual set of baseless lies surrounding the 2020 election. But so far, the hearings, they've been focused on how Trump has been trying to push that big lie of a stolen election. And we've also seen his pressure campaign on the then Vice President Pence for him to not certify those electors on January 6th. Uh, one of the main focal points uh, of the riots, as we saw those riots, those, the pro-Trump mob entering the Capitol, screaming, hang Mike Pence.
0: You mentioned one previous polling number, which shows a a bit of an increase uh, in the number of people who want to see President Trump charged with a crime. Are there any other interesting trends in this poll?
6: There are. So we, like I said, the poll kind of divides among party lines, Democrats and Republicans. But the poll actually did something uh, a little unique, and it actually pulled independents specifically in and of itself and they showed that 62 percent of independent voters feel trump uh should be charged with the crime um you know whether uh, conspiracy or what have you and that's pretty significant given the fact that we are only months away from the november uh 2022 midterm elections and we do know that it those battleground states those uh, seven battleground states that were so crucial to the 2020 election. We know that independent voters could swing an election either way given on you know their support. So the fact that you have a majority of those independent voters seeing Trump as somewhat culpable in the events that took place on January 6th is a big indication that the Republican Party may have some issues moving forward in, in the upcoming midterm elections. Polling has
0: also showed that it doesn't look like the Democrats are going to fare well in the midterm elections, but this is kind of going against that trend.
6: It really is. You know, like you said before, uh, usually in the midterm year, the incumbent president usually gets slammed a little bit when it comes to those midterm elections. And it's usually seen as a referendum on uh, that particular party. And we're seeing right now President Biden's poll numbers. They are not doing well. As a matter of fact, they're a little above President Trump's poll poll numbers when he was at his lowest. And a lot of that has to do with the rising prices of goods and services that we're seeing all across the board, from the grocery stores, And obviously, to the pain at the pump that we're seeing right now, I mean, just a year ago, gas was two dollars less than what we're seeing right now. A lot of that is not a good sign for President Biden. But I think this poll is really pointing to the fact that Americans are kind of separating the job that Biden is doing. Granted, the economy is not doing well. That may be reflective of President Biden's numbers. But this is also a very big, major issue right now that's grabbing their attention. It's sustaining their attention. And as the polls indicate, it could actually change their minds about what they initially thought
0: with the number of americans that want to see president trump charged with a crime and that you know support the january 6th committee that's going to hurt trump republicans running for office probably more than anyone else
6: absolutely and there are a lot of them a new study uh, shows that there are over 100 candidates that are currently running in statewide elections that'll be uh tabulated this November, who are pushing the big lie, who are saying that the ele- the 2020 election was fraudulent, who are uh, asserting that President Biden isn't the legitimate pre- uh, president. All lies, all based on those baseless lies pushed by former President Donald Trump. Uh, nevertheless, we're seeing over 100 candidates run on that big lie. So that's something that's going to be uh, quite problematic come the November election and- when it comes to securing democracy here in this country. So it has huge ramifications. uh, The big lie does in the upcoming election and just why it's so important. You're seeing members of the House Select Committee really try to do their job with hasteness and fervor to really explain to the American people how consequential it is that they get this right. Now, it's important to know that this isn't a criminal investigation. These aren't criminal proceedings. Uh, there, no judgment can come down after these hearings. However, we are seeing the department of justice uh, now asking for transcripts from the testimonies that were related to the January 6th hearing. We all know they're having their own separate criminal investigation into the events that surrounded that 2020 election and January 6th. Obviously know that they'll be talking to some of the same people who have already talked to the committee, the committee said that they will hand over those transcripts. So while there may be no actual physical uh, charges stemming from this, there are ramifications that could lead to some further uh, federal charges from the DOJ, uh, given everything that we've seen so far.
0: All right, Ike Jocci from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Take care. Still to come, overturning Roe v. Wade. We'll take another look at our top story and hear from activists on both sides of the debate. When the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, we return to the issue of abortion. On Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down 50 years of precedent, saying that the 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade was egregiously wrong from the start. But how is it playing here in Washington State? We're hearing from some longtime foes in the battle over abortion. Ryan Harris has their reaction.
2: Planned Parenthood has long advocated for women's reproductive rights, including abortion. And its statement on the decision says in part that it, quote, overturned nearly 50 years of precedent by eliminating the constitutional right to abortion, stripping people of the right to control their own bodies, and opening the doors for statewide abortion bans across the country. Planned Parenthood also promised, to provide safe and legal access to abortion in Washington. Washington State Catholic Conference Director Mario Villanueva says the church believes in human rights but that the bishops in our state make clear the church's role as advocate for unborn children. A child that's vulnerable cannot stand up for themselves. That's a real critical base point I think and those are my words
1: of what we need to pay attention to in terms of protecting life.
2: The bishops say the church will continue to encourage parents to seek alternatives to abortion and that it will continue to offer support to struggling families who need it. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio.
0: And of course, reaction to the ruling and its after effects are just beginning. We'll have much, much more on this in the coming weeks. But for now, that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out some of our other programs, such as Northwest News This Week, Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening and have a good week.